This week, NCPR is exploring Black history in the North Country. February is Black History Month, so we're re-airing stories from the past year that delve into Black history and life in the region. Today, the North Country is about 95% white, and thousands of locals work in state prisons, which largely incarcerate black and brown men. There's a dark history of Ku Klux Klan activity forcing black people out of the region. We'll hear more about that on tomorrow's show. There's also history of black farming and settlement. In the Adirondacks, the legacy of black land ownership stretches back to before the Civil War. That's coming up on this edition of Story of the Day. Support for Story of the Day comes from Pearsall Wealth Management at UBS Wealth Management USA, subsidiary UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC, 1 Broad Street, Glens Falls. Hi, I'm Lucy Grindon, filling in for David Summerstein. It's Monday, February 19th. First up, some news. New York has a new set of potential congressional district maps. The state's Independent Redistricting Commission proposed the modified district outlines last week. If the drafted maps are approved, the North Country's districts won't change very much. Kara Chapman has more. According to the Associated Press, the proposed new congressional maps make modest changes to three competitive districts in central New York and the Hudson Valley, but they don't substantially change the state's other 23 districts, including those in the North Country. Charles Nesbitt is the Redistricting Commission's Republican vice chair. He says the new map is a good compromise between the two major parties. Despite whatever either one of us might think of the shortcomings of the map individually, it's a wonderful result for the people of the state of New York. Under the proposed maps, New York's 21st Congressional District, represented by Republican Elise Stefanik, would likely remain a GOP stronghold. It would keep the vast majority of the North Country, with some changes around the fringes. For example, the villages of Alexandria Bay and Theresa and Jefferson County would move to the 24th District. That's the seat held by Republican Congresswoman Claudia Tenney, who currently represents other parts of the Thousand Islands and Watertown. NY-21 would gain parts of Oneida and Saratoga counties, though not the village of Schuylerville, where Stefanik lives. The district would lose all of Schoharie County and its portion of Otsego County. It would also lose parts of Montgomery and Rensselaer counties, including East Greenbush, where Stefanik runs a constituent services office. Multiple candidates have emerged against Stefanik. There's Republican Jill Lochner, Democrats Paula Collins and Steve Holden, and Working Families candidate Brian Rouleau. Candidates in New York State can start gathering petitions for primaries on February 27th. It's unclear when the legislature will vote on the new lines. If it votes them down, the Democratic majorities would redraw them, potentially setting up another Republican-led lawsuit. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio. Recent research has uncovered more information about the history of Black land ownership in the Adirondacks, starting before the Civil War. And scholars have been working to keep that history present. Emily Russell has the story. For most of America's history as a nation, Black people have either been enslaved or oppressed. By the 19th century, slavery was abolished in the North, but there were still white Northerners who owned slaves, and all freed Black people lacked basic human rights. Even in the North, many Black people experienced severe discrimination. 
In the 1840s, a man named Garrett Smith set out to change that. He owned 120,000 acres of land in the Adirondacks. By giving away parcels of that land to black American men, those men could then gain the right to vote. Paul Smith's professor, Kurt Steger, has been researching black history in the Adirondacks. He recently presented some of those findings to the Adirondack Park Agency. The basic idea was to bring people of diverse backgrounds onto the land to live together and build communities out of mutual respect as neighbors and facing common challenges, which I think actually fits the theme of the Adirondack Park now as well. But it was uh, much more ambitious back then. That ambitious settlement became known as Timbuktu. Steger has been plotting where exactly those black settlements were in the Adirondacks. He showed the APA maps of those plots around the region. At least half of North Elba and much of St. Armand was black-owned in the 1850s. There's the town of Franklin with Vermontville and uh, Bloomingdale just below it and all the way up to Loon Lake and beyond up into Belmont. So it was huge. About half of this landscape was black-owned. Life in the Adirondacks was not easy back then, especially for Black people. Many eventually moved out of the area, but some stayed and raised their families in the Adirondacks. There are descendants of that Timbuktu settlement still in the region today. Another aspect of Steger's research has focused on place names. He explained to the APA about learning of an offensive name of a brook just north of Saranac Lake. Years ago, I was in Onchiota. The red star shows uh, the Paul Smith College property. And I was talking to a friend who said, oh, that little brook right there, that's called N-word brook. I thought, wow, that's you know, not only offensive, but mysterious. How could that happen in a place like this? Steger believes the brook was named for the skin color of a dozen or so black families that lived in the area. So he and some other folks worked to change that name. They got support from students, faculty, and staff at Paul Smith College, as well as the Vermontville Town Council and county officials. They wrote to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names and were successfully granted permission to change the name to John Thomas Brook. Thomas was one of the first settlers of Timbuktu. He later sold his original plot of land, but moved back to the Vermontville area with his family. Thomas bought 150 acres of land where he grew vegetables and raised cows and sheep. John Thomas spent the rest of his days in Vermontville, and he's buried in Union Cemetery, that quiet little cemetery you drive past on Route 3 heading for Plattsburgh, zipping past, not even thinking about it. He's right in there, and so is his wife. The work to educate the public and celebrate the legacy of Black settlers and abolitionists in the Adirondacks is ongoing. Martha Swan also spoke at the recent APA meeting. Swan is the founder and executive director of John Brown Lives, a project named after the legendary white abolitionists who owned a farm near Lake Placid. Through this work that others have done and that we've done together, I have begun to believe in the unifying potential of our history, the unifying potential of rolling up our sleeves, digging deep into the horrors, the terrors, the tragedies, the violence, the crime of so much of our history. Swan helped organize the Juneteenth celebration at the John Brown Farm. Then in August, the farm is planning to host a long table dinner in discussion with leading scholars such as Nell Painter. The event is an effort to bring together diverse people and perspectives to talk about the history and the future of the Adirondack Park. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio. That story first aired in June of last year. 
On tomorrow's show, we'll hear about the history of KKK activity in the 1920s and 30s, when the group terrorized people in St. Lawrence County and drove out most of the area's black population in the span of a decade. More news all the time at ncpr.org. Music today by Caitlin Scholl of Lake Placid. I'm Lucy Grindon, North Country Public Radio.